Guys, we are continuing in, a, in our series, it's a mini-series on the God of mission and the people of mission. You know, last week we actually, we talked about the fact that, that God, um, who's on mission, is he sends the Son, and the Son sends his people to make disciples, to invade the world with the good news of his gospel. And not only does God send every Christian, but that he sends them right away. That you're, we're not waiting for you to achieve a certain um, level to where you're ready to actually participate in the mission of God. That you actually have a part and can be helping through the relationships that God has placed you in. And because you are a part of the church and it is a mission organization. It is a missions outpost and you are part of it and you have a part. And you know, I highlighted the fact that you, there's some of us that are evangelists and some of us that are not. And you might be terrified and uh, not know what to say to people at times. However, every one of us who is a Christian who has been sent by God can speak of the mercy that God has shown to us. Every single one of us. And God, with, by God's help, he can be a part of changing people's lives to know him. And today we're going to continue that, uh, the discussion in the book of Daniel. We're going to be talking about the fact that God sends us to peculiar places at times. That God sends us to places that can be hard or difficult or strange. And places that we don't always want to be. Peculiar places. As we dive into the book that we're going to uh, study this morning, in the book of Daniel, chapters 1 and 2, uh, there's some things that we are going to notice about what's going on. Let me give you a little background. You see, the reality is, God sends his people to peculiar places, and he does so so that the, his kingdom, God's kingdom, can continue to invade the whole world. You see, the people of God had gotten to a place where they are, were radically disobedient to God. You know, about 600 years before the birth of Christ, something horrific was going to happen. And that thing that, that was going to happen was an exile of God's people. You see, up to that point, there, there was walking with God, and then there was some disobedience, and then there was these seasons where they would do evil in the sight of God, and God would send these prophets to speak to them, and challenge them, and preach to them, and some prophets, like Isaiah, no one even listened. I mean, if you want to see the mark of a successful ministry, look at a ministry where no one even listens. Although it was successful, it's just the hearts were hard. And later we have others that were weeping over the people, and warning the people, listen to God, listen to God, and they refuse, and finally they get to the point where God tells them, enough is enough, and you are going to be under my discipline, and it is coming. And it came in the form of a Babylonian leader named Nebuchadnezzar. And here's the, one of the amazing things that we see right from the get-go of the beginning of the book of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, as much as they were being exiled, as much as it was about the power and the might of, of Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar coming and invading these people and conquering the people of God, it really wasn't about them conquering Israel and the people of God. It was really about the God of heaven giving his people into the hands of his enemies to discipline them. In fact, those are the first words that we see come out of the book of Daniel. 
We see the fact that Daniel is painting this picture so that we know from beginning to the end of this book that God is sovereignly in control over the affairs of humanity and he's going to discipline his people and send them in this very particular place, very, very odd, peculiar place for discipline. But I ask you, as you look into the passage, who's invading who here? Are they invading Israel and taking over them, the Babylonians? Or is it God who was invading the Babylonians with good news? Listen to the text of Scripture. It begins like this in chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, right? So this is the people of God. Nebuchadnezzar, who is the, the ruler, the king of Babylon, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now notice what the text wants us to see. And the Lord gave Jerichoam, king of Judah, into his hands. So Babylon comes and invades. But God wants us today to know, no, 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 I'm in control over the affairs of man I am giving them into your hands. And this was a part of their discipline. But one of the things we will see, uh, even in the early passages, as we go through this, this particular section of Scripture, chapter 1 and 2, is we will see, not only is God sovereignly in control of the affairs of man, that God is disciplining these people, but he's doing so so they get to hear about a coming kingdom and king, Jesus. And we'll see that unfolded as we look into the first couple chapters of Scripture. You see, what will happen is he will tell us of a kingdom that will last forever. What kingdom could that possibly he be referring to? So one of the first things we see is this, that God gives them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and then, after that, we see that he comes and he's going to take over these people. And an odd thing happens within the story. Nebuchadnezzar sends one of his authorities, one of his rulers, to take a lot of the youths from this area. A lot of the, the good-looking, smart, intelligent, wise, young people. Why would they do that? Well, the reason they're doing this is because they are going to totally trying to squash the culture of the people of God and have it be a part of the Babylonian culture. One of the things that happens that's so odd when you're first reading the narrative is that not only does Babylon invade and take these youths, but he takes these youths so that they would actually be able to hang out in the court of the king. And one of the first things they do, once they bring him over and they talk about this, this, uh, this plan of training while they're hanging out with the Babylonians, is they change their names. Now, you see something interesting when you actually take a closer look at the names what, uh, that they give to these Jewish youths. Let me tell you what the names of these Jewish youths are, and then I'm going to tell you their counterpart, the names the Babylonians give them. This is a part of changing their culture, this is, or an attempt to change their culture. This is what they call them. So Daniel means God is my judge. And Hannah means Yahweh is gracious. So that's the personal name of God. Mishael, it says, who is what God is? And then there's a fourth, Azirah, Yahweh has helped. And then the Babylonians take him over, they 
kidnap these youths, they bring them to Babylon, and they are um, given these new names, and they're trying to give them a new identity and reorient their gods. You see, the Jewish youths, even though there is an amazing amount of disobedience and dishonor of the God of heaven, there are plenty that love God and want to serve him. They've changed their names, and when you, when you look at their new names, they mean this. So Daniel's given the name Belshazzar, which means protect his life. It's actually a petition to uh, a Babylonian god. So imagine you're taken over, and your name is changed to refer to a god of that region instead of the god that you know. Shadrach, uh, or Hanani, is given Shadrach. You know, these names are familiar because this is, these are the names you think of when you remember Daniel. It's Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach means uh, command of Aku, who is a moon god. Uh, Meshach, who is, it, it, his name is changed to who is what Aku is, another Babylonian god. And the last, uh, Abednego, it's a, it's a servant of Nebu, uh, and that's basically like the second greatest god in Babylon. So when you read the text, these names are changed not just to be changed. They're changed to really snub out and squash the culture and the identity of the god that these Jewish Hebrew people are worshiping. Now, it's a really interesting thing. Because of when we think about what it means to be the people of God who are on, are on mission with God, there comes situations and circumstances that we have to be very discerning about. Um, you know, the Bible tells us that we are in the world, but not of the world. Now, here we have a circumstance where the people of God are kidnapped into the world. Their names, by force, are changed. There's nothing they can do about that. They have to just receive it, don't they? But then, shortly after this, they're going to run to a situation, where they have, a situation where they have decisions to make. Like, what do I accept? What do I not accept? And what kind of attitude do I have along the way as I interact with these people? You see, sadly for me, there are times I see other brothers and sisters behave in such a way that is not kind uh, to non-Christians, that's not gracious, that is unnecessarily gruff with them at times, even when we don't sense it, per se perhaps. But you see, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, if we are called to be on mission with God, and he's sending every single one of us, and he's sending us in some odd and peculiar places, then we need to be ready in such a way to do it appropriately, and we need a lot of wisdom to handle it. You see, I'm going to highlight some very peculiar places that God could send us in, because God could send you into, that he may or may not send others into, that you have been equipped for, Okay, and here is one of them. And so now, as their names are changed and their identity is being changed, they're just teenagers, right? They've been conquered and they've been kidnapped. They're taken away from everything they've known. They're kids, they're teenagers, but there is such amazing wisdom with these guys. Something happens with Daniel, the scriptures tell us, that is absolutely phenomenal. He sa it says this in chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, 
Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. It's a really interesting thing. Now, when you read this, you have to be a little bit careful. And those of you that have been, around, that have been Christians for a while, you understand. Look, we know that Scripture, um, it allows for the consumption of adult beverages. This is not uh, an affront to say to Christians um, or the people of God, never touch an adult beverage. But when you first read that, if you're new, you might think that. Look at Daniel. He resolved he would not defile himself by the king's food or with that wine that he drank, right? But what was it about this wine? And what was it about this particular food that Daniel had concerned with defiling himself? You see, one of the major things that was going on with the people God, of, of God as it led up to these moments, to, this, to the 7th century before the birth of Jesus, was a rebellion to God where they were offering sac- sacrifices to false gods. And here they being exiled by God because of this, this idol worship and this rebellion against God. And now he's in a circumstance where he has the opportunity to obey or disobey God. You see, the king's choice food and drink is offered to their Babylonian gods. Daniel is trying to be obedient to the God of heaven that says, no, there are no, you will have no other gods before me. And here is this youth, part of the few among the people of God who want to obey him, who is resolving resolving that he would not defile himself. And I will tell you this, brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we can be missional as we are sent in peculiar places is to resolve in our hearts and in our minds that we will obey God in all things as we enter into um, the world and not being of it. This was offered to false gods, and he is resolved not to do it. Now, what is he to do? What is he to do? He does something very fascinating. He actually appeals. It says, therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He actually, he actually made an appeal. You know, brothers and sisters, as we enter the work faith, the workforce, the work face, the workforce, um, the arena of school, the arena of hanging out with other people. There are places uh, in those, there are opportunities that um, show their authority. And sometimes, as Christians, it might be tempting to just assert our biblical authority and say, this is wrong, we shouldn't do this. Um, And it's true. But there takes great wisdom to handle such things with the appropriate appeal at times. For example, if we're in the classroom of a teacher who's talking about their stuff and you're in high school and you, you need to be respectful. If you start hearing some, you know, some crazy, you know, an- anti-Jesus doctrine or, uh, you know, evolution theory, which is supposed to be taught according to curriculum, like, you can, like, you can interact in a classroom, in a learning center, but you're supposed to do it respectful. But sometimes younger Christians, it's like, pow, 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 we start shooting people down. Unnecessarily, perhaps. And if we're in their world, then perhaps there is a way to appeal with some respect and some dignity 
And I just see this amazing thing with Daniel where he actually makes an appeal in a situation where he has no choice, by the way. Because if he comes out guns blazing, they're just going to be like, okay, you want to die. Poof, in the pit. But people are people. Why offend them unnecessarily? So he appeals. And notice that. See that. The other thing is this. This is powerful that we see. And this is one of the major themes in this book that, that God wants us to see is that God is in control over the affairs of man. And it says this in verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. The key to his success with his appeal, although he rightly appealed to this authority in his life, is God's mercy, God's compassion on him with the authorities that were in his life. So if we are in these settings as the people of God, it stands to reason that we need to be the kind of people that make an appeal, that m move in those arenas with grace and gentleness and kindness. And I say this, I say this in light of going to, you know, having just teenagers and going to athletic competitions. And I got to tell you, I see some Christian kids be so rude to their non-Christian coaches. And I just want to smack somebody. And I think, my goodness, are you kidding me? This defames our God. What if they say, this Christian, I can't believe the way this Christian treats me. And it just shouldn't be this way. We need to have this type of attitude. We need to trust in God. We need to make that kind of appeal, knowing that we, God will send us into some very peculiar places. One of the things we see as we look at the story is that these people, these young people, are no longer in Jerusalem. They are in Babylon. You are in Babylon. We are in Babylon. You guys, this is not the new heaven, new earth. We are sojourners. We are aliens. We are, this is not our world. And so it is imperfect and messy. And there is amazing opportunity to bring the good news of the gospel in it. And we need to do it in such a way that will appeal to people with grace. Because God is sending us in peculiar places so that his kingdom will continue to invade the whole earth. And we will see that unpacked. But let me just give you a couple of examples how this happens. I was recently listening to um, um, a pastor from, from Scotland, and he was sharing his story his, of conversion, and he came into faith at a much uh, um, older age. Um, it was, he was not raised in the church. His parents and stepmom were not Christians. In fact, he was uh, aggressively abused and mistreated horrifically beaten and all the terrible things that can happen to a kid were happening to him in his house. And he would not blame his sin on, on his background, but it certainly has some sort of impact on him, and he basically lived a life of violence. Um, he felt and thought the way to deal with hardship was to be violent, and it landed him in prison. And because of these experiences and the type of family he got, that would mean he had a very particular type of family history and friends that were in crime and drug dealers and really bad, bad, rotten people. He gets saved reading the Bible in prison. 
and he marries and becomes a missionary, a church planter. Um, he gets into contact with some of those old friends and family after coming out of prison. And they say, hey, hey, yo, yo, uh, you know, come, come be with us. We're going to have a gathering. Now, now, depending on the kind of background you have and, your fr- and the type of friends and family that you have, you're going to have different types of gatherings. Now, some, this will sound very foreign to some of you, but some of you might sound exactly like the kind of family you have, perhaps. So they call him and say, hey, we're going to have this, this party. Why don't you come? And they say, hey, we want you to um, help pitch in for uh, the stripper. Let me say that again. We want you to participate. We want you to help pay for the stripper. And he's like, hey, man, look, I'm a Christian. I'm a minister. Like, that's not going to happen. Um, I, I, w- I would love to see you guys, but that's, that's not a part of my life anymore. Now, depending on your background and the kind of friends and family that you have, that might be the kind of questions you get. You know, and God m- perhaps might be sending you into these particular types of people groups, possibly. And he's like, no. They were faced, so he and his wife were faced with this really interesting uh, decision to make. So they, they actually, they go to the, the party, and this is, this is family. What do you do when your family is wackadoodle and violent and does crazy stuff? They basically had resolved that uh, when things were weird, they were out. So um, before things got weird and they didn't participate in paying for those types of things, but they wanted to see these friends and family and be with them. Um, and he said the most amazing thing happened. He said over 30, like 40 people sitting down with he and his wife, pouring out their lives at how broken and how they had no answers and they didn't know what to do or who to turn to and if God could do anything. And these were criminals, they were hardened, they had come out of prison, they were dealing drugs, they were in everything bad, and they were violent, and they were gushing out, crying, talking to this Christian minister now about their lives, asking what do they do. And he talked about how he shared the gospel with all these people. That may not be the kind of world that you step into that will demand the type of wisdom to navigate such an odd and weird situation but that God called them and put them in this particular kind of situation with the background they had. Your family and friends might look very different, but you do have family and friends where it will lead you into these peculiar kind of circumstances. Not that per se, but maybe something like that. I'm going to give you another example that I think is just absolutely amazing with what the result. There's a, a ministry called Scarlet Hope. And in this particular context, there was a, there was a woman who had a, just a, a broken heart for um, all these young women in the uh, adult industry, the strip, strip club industry in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And she gives this, these ama- this horrific stats of how many of these clubs are there, were there in her, t- in her town. And she began praying for a, like a year straight. God, I feel burdened about these women. I'm not sure what to do. And after a year of just praying and pleading with God and and having a heart for these women, she decided and felt led to go to the club. And she went to the owner and said, look, would it be okay if I brought food to these women? This is a woman, by the way. Okay, this is is only women-run ministry, this one. Goes to the owner of the club and says, can I bring these women food? 
And the owner of the club says, you know what, absolutely. And she starts, continues praying. She brings food. Next thing she knows, she's getting to know these women. She's feeding them. And then the crazy thing happens. A bunch of them start coming to the church and get saved and repent and learn about Jesus. Phenomenal ministry. It's called Scarlet Hope. After that, she has gone to a bunch of these clubs. It's probably smashing that adult industry because of the good news of the gospel invading their world. I say that not to say that that might be what your world would look like. I say that to, so you understand that where God sends you could be very peculiar or difficult. But it would be something connected to your history and your friendships and the world that you've been around whether it's athletics or whatever. I'm not telling you to go and sin. And these ones are extreme cases where one person has a whole family of criminals. How do you spend time with them and share the gospel with them? And then they say, hey, would you come to our party and hang out with us? We'd love to see you. And then the other says, I feel burdened by these women who would never step foot into our church because they feel judged. Because... They may not know the women in our church, and it's not fair, but they would never step foot in our church unless we go to them somehow. And so I ask you this, how do we do that here where we live? As we continue, we see that Daniel was taken by force. We know that. We know that God sends his people into peculiar places, but we don't have to go by force, although sometimes there's some very peculiar ways that God would send us into situations with people that we know so that they may hear about the glory of Jesus. But it's about identifying and, being, and paying attention to how God would do that. After the season of testing for Daniel and his friends, they are brought into the presence of the king. And the king is amazed with these young people. And the, one of the primary reasons why he is so amazed uh, is verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God, who ordains the history of men, gave them all kinds of skill to basically deal with the situation that they're in. The king was amazingly impressed with these young people, and he looked to them more than all of the other magicians and wizards that he had in his court. You see, these, these uh, young Hebrew boys would not turn to talking to the dead or anything like that. They would turn to speaking to God and he had, they had the ear of the most powerful man on the planet, Nebuchadnezzar. You see, God sends his people in very odd and peculiar places. Sometimes that odd and peculiar place can be the mundane. You see, what happens to this peculiar place that Daniel sends him to, it actually becomes the mundane and normal place for Daniel. It becomes his entire life. God has sent you into a peculiar place, but he also has you in the mundane, the normal like your home, like your work, like your school, like the place that you eat, and the people that you interact with every single day. 
One of the amazing things that we see that goes on throughout the history in the book of Daniel is Daniel actually develops a relationship, a friendship, if you will, with this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who is a psychopath, by the way. He is a complete crazy person. Let me show you. There comes a day in chapter 2 where, where the king Nebuchadnezzar has this terrible dream. And he comes to uh, all of his wizards and everyone that's supposed to have an answer. And he calls them to his court and he wants an answer for them, from them. And he says, look, here's the deal. I want you to tell me what I dreamt. And when these wizards and sorcerers show up, Daniel hasn't shown up yet, they can't answer. And he's like, look, look, I'm growing super impatient with you guys. I, I don't, you, you're telling me to tell you what I've had a vision of, and then you're going to interpret it for me, but it's not going to work this way. This is what's going to happen. To prove that you actually know what you're doing, you're going to tell me what I dreamt. And they're like, king, this is impossible. No one can do this. No, no, look, you don't understand. If you cannot tell me what my dream was, we are going to rip you limb from limb. And the scripture says that we are going to turn your place into ruins. Verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, which is like the high, high society people, they're wealthy, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your house shall be laid in ruins. Interesting word. It certainly means ruins, but that word actually also means crap. He wants their homes to be turned into a pile of poop. He is so angry. He is so frustrated. He is so crazy that he wants them to be torn limb from limb and their household and their people to be turned into a pile of poop. And he says, if you can't, if you can't tell me what I dreamt and interpret it, this is what's going to happen. My word is firm. All of the Babylonian wizards, sorcerers, are terrified. The king sends out a decree to go kill all these people. And word comes to Daniel, finally, and his friends. And they come, and Daniel is, puts pause in those in authority and says, hey, wait, wait, why is the king so upset? Let, can you at least give us a shot? And look at what Daniel does in verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house, and he made the matter known to Hananah, Mishael, and Azurah, his companions, and told them to seek the mercy from God, the God of heaven, concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He doesn't turn to scheming. I'm sure he was doing some thinking. But his first response is turning to the God of heaven and pleading with him and enlisting other friends with him to pursue and seek the mercy of God in this matter. I find that absolutely amazing. In the midst of the world, the mission that God has us on, we need to continually turn to trusting in God and pursuing him in prayer. 
It's such a basic part of our warfare. It's such a needed part of our warfare. But there's nothing that turns it on like life and death. He turns to God, and then God hears him and answers and gives him the mystery. Daniel's response is to praise and worship the God of heaven. He gets, he gets an audience with the king, and he goes on to tell the king what it is that he had dreamt. Now, one of the things that we will see here in the interpretation of the dream is something amazing about what God is revealing to the king, the most powerful man on the planet. And one of, us, one of those issues is connected to the fact that God is sovereign over all of the affairs of the planet, including this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who thinks he's the most powerful man on the planet. Now, that authority and power has come from God himself. And the discipline that he's given to his people has come only from God, no matter how cool and bad and rad Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is. And he will also tell him what, af what affairs of the planet are going to happen in the near future so that Nebuchadnezzar and all around him will know who the true God of the universe is. Daniel goes on to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream. And he paints this amazing image of this terrifying statue. And it's, and it's, it's big, and it's, it's scary, and it's, and it's huge. Um, and it says this, in chapter 2, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, the great image. The image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of, five of, of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle, its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its, its uh, feet uh, partly of iron and partly of clay. As you, you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, very key, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now this is what's going on, and this is what, what Daniel was actually going to tell him. One of the things we know, I'm going to connect it with what he says to him and also what we know about human history leading up to Christ's advent and him showing up in human history. Um, a lot of scholars you read will point out um, Daniel's interpretation of these four different kingdoms that arise. You'll notice that it, it begins with a very fine material like gold, and it works its way to less and lesser material, silver, bronze, and then a mix of, of iron and clay. And what we're to see that is that all of the man-made uh, um, uh, governments throughout human history, they don't get better and better and more refined. The, one of the most refined ones, one of the most brilliant ones was the one of Nebuchadnezzar, and they get lesser and lesser and lesser and more fragmented. And it actually ends with Rome, because we know that clay and iron do not mix well, ends up being very brittle. And what he's painting a picture of is that Christ is, is this rock that's cut from like a mountain, and it comes and it just crushes all these other uh, governments, and they are annihilated. And what he's pointing out is that all these kingdoms on earth will not last, except the kingdom that God is establishing. Human kingdoms will not, will not last, but God's kingdom is. And so I ask you again, who's invading who here? Is Babylon invading Israel, or is Israel invading Babylon? 
Now we know, we know by, by looking at the scriptures, like his, his people are being disciplined and they come in here, but we also know they get this amazing story. They get this amazing truth from, revealed to them from God through Daniel. Listen to the closing part of the text here. It says, O God of heaven, excuse me, in verse 44, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be, be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That is a reference to what all scholars agree is to Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom will stand forever, and all the kingdoms that have gone before it will not stand. You and I are a part of a kingdom that will last forever under Christ and his headship. The response of Nebuchadnezzar is fascinating. He actually responds in praise. Look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. What, what Nebuchadnezzar recognizes is that the God of Daniel reveals mysteries. He is almighty. So what does, a, what does a person do after hearing such amazing things? Well, the very next chapter, he builds this big, big monument and t- calls everyone to worship it, which is complete foolishness. So Nebuchadnezzar is not saved at this point, but he's acknowledging the God of heaven. And this is what I want to close by saying. I want to close by saying this. Look. God calls us to go to in very peculiar places. Sometimes they're hard places, but they're very mundane places. They're the everyday part of our, our life. God calls us on mission, every single one of us, and they're in different, unique, peculiar places that not all of us can reach, but you can, where God has you. You've been uniquely gifted and fitted to reach those particular people that God has put, placed you in with. It's the same for God's people in the early days. It's the same for God's people now. Let's pray.